Spring Trends, everyone. This is Ann Miller. I'm here with my host, uh, co-host Chris Coop, and we have the honor and privilege of speaking again tonight to the founder of Energyme Companies and Energyme University. That would be Mr. William Sosinski. Hello, Bill. How are you? I'm doing fine this evening. Thank you so much. How are you guys doing? You know, we're behaving. We just opened a, gla- a bottle of wine, and Cindy's going to be making dinner, and Chris, Chris and I are talking to you, so life is good. Sounds like a good Chris plan for the evening. <laughs> Oh, Chris is making dinner. I take that back. So, well, we, we haven't been up to much of anything new, but I have a, a feeling that you have. So I'm really looking forward to... Except that we did take a little jaunt to Chicago. We did go to Chicago. That is true. We had a very nice time meeting Norma Bernson up there and doing some strategizing for how to sustainably grow food for the globe, which I think ties into what you've been up to, Bill. Is that true? Well, that's that's a, the the main focus for this century, I think, and and I think people are going to become aware of that sooner than later. You know, with all the pressure that we're getting with the changing climate and rating of our natural environment, farmers are starting to have a very very difficult time. And there are other things in the background that are 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 becoming immediate issues that we're going to have to deal with if we're going to have a productive agricultural world global community in the in the coming years. And you're right, I, I just got back, I was on a trip, second trip in the last few months to China. They're very concerned. And, uh, that so was tell us about the, the trip, Bill. The I'd love well, to hear I, some of the little intricacies and, and some of those little nuances that you picked up. I want to hear everything. I'm not just sticking to the nuances and eating the secrets. Right. I want the whole story. <laughs> okay, you're going to well, have to I, press I, up, Bill. I, I, was invited, I was invited over by the, by the Chinese to spend some time over there. They're, the Chinese government is being, I think, very visionary, if you want to look at it in one way, is certainly very active in wanting to counter a lot of the issues and challenges that they're facing that are the unintended consequences of the incredible industrial and urban growth that they've had over the last few decades. You know, you go to China, and to see the amount of construction, new construction, and the size of their cities and the size of their infrastructure projects, you know, these are the people that brought you the the Great Wall. And they still build and conceive of projects on that scale. And just in the last, you know, the last few months, last year, the Chinese government has become extremely sensitive to the amount of deterioration of their natural environment. China's a a beautiful, beautiful country. And because of all of their industrial growth and their reliance on you know, particularly coal for the production of energy, they've had, uh, you know, a their 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 environment has collapsed or is starting to collapse, and they know it. Their air pollution wow. is at unacceptable levels right now, as it is in a lot of Asia, not just China, but India has that problem. Uh, many areas in Asia are suffering those same consequences from burning coal, and they have other issues that relate to their farming practices and the amount of fertilizer and phosphorus that's getting into their water systems. And as they start to grow and as they start to build these huge cities, I mean, cities that are literally built in the middle of a plain that used to be natural land that, that in five to ten years housed ten million people. And that type of oh my goodness, that scale and at that speed is almost incomprehensible if you're, if you're from that the West. That is incomprehensible. Five to ten years and it goes to how many did you say? They are five planning, million? They're planning on building housing in the next five years to house 100 million migrants that are coming in from rural areas 
look for jobs in the city. This is a big deal in China. A lot wow. of uh, uh, Chinese families, particularly rural families, are being torn apart unnecessarily because the men in the family needing to find an adequate income are not able to raise those or not able to, to achieve that income on their rural farms. So what they're doing is they're migrating to the cities to find work and they spend 11 and a half months away from their families. And during that time, it puts stress on the on the marriages. They don't get to see their kids. This is not something, the Chinese are very, very family oriented. And this is not right. something that they they want to see for their society. They're very sensitive about that. And they're trying to figure and out ways right now to alter that. But in the meantime, they're building, they have construction underway right now for 100 million residences. And try to conceive that. That's one-third or practically one-third of the United States, and they're going to be building that over a five-year period. Uh, so you go into these cities. Yeah. Wow. We, we visited cities like Tianjin and Zhangzhou, and you, you see these rows of beautiful, modern, 30-story 30, 30 residential building complexes, but on a scale that, that I don't think people are used to in the West, where you'll have you know, 50, 100, 200 buildings in a complex. I'd hate to get drunk and have to find my home. I, I, you could get lost oh, forever. Oh, my goodness. But the modern infrastructure and the way the, the Chinese have gone about it with bullet trains and modern roads and a budgeting car society has created enormous pressure on the environment. And they're now very sensitive to it. And, and i got to give them credit in the fact that they are taking unprecedented effort right now, termination, in trying to solve their problems of the environment if there's any country on the world, and, and I truly mean this, that is going to be successful in doing this, it's going to be China. Because they well, have, what an amazing opportunity at the same time, because if they're building all of this new construction, they have an opportunity to implement so many new technologies that are going to support water management and different alternative forms of energy and, and so forth. Is that what you're seeing happening? Is that in the plan? Well, yeah. I, you know, I think that every culture has its strengths and its weaknesses. Okay, and you know, hopefully, as humanity evolves, we'll start merging those strengths and 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 getting rid of the weaknesses that basically hold us back. And I think that the more collaboration that happens between the West and China, there are beneficial aspects to what they do. There are beneficial things that we do that could really be combined. And there's certainly lessons that both sides need to learn in order not just to work better together, but actually to work in, a, in an efficient manner that's going to provide the long-term solutions that we're looking for. And I think the West is very, very creative. I think that we come up with a lot of technologies. There's a lot of free thinking. There's a lot of innovation. Not mm -hmm. that there isn't innovation in China. There certainly is, and there are brilliant people over there. They've got great scientists. But I think that the West has been a better environment for that type of uh, innovation. On the other hand, I think that the Chinese are far, far better at collaborating, at being of a single mind, to try to get a solution, working together, that sort of thing. And that's something that the West needs to learn from the Chinese. We need to adapt their attitude towards trying to solve a problem because once they decide to approach a problem and to, to and to take care of it, there's not a lot of blame at that point. I think that they're very positive, that they want to do what's right, and, and they want to find solutions that make sense. If I would say that they have a weakness... I think that they think that I think that it seems to me at least that there's the appearance that they think everything is going to be solved by technology, and technology right. is a is a is sort of the false the false solution. It's not that technology is not going to be an integral part of solving our problems, 
But the real problem that we have with the environment really has to do with people and our balance of the way we both produce and consume our resources. And unless we address that directly through education, reconditioning of our population, we're going to fail and the Chinese are going to fail. I think that they're coming, to, they're really looking at this hard and they're taking a, a very, very, uh, I think very smart route in trying to evaluate how they're going to go forward. And they need, because the, the truth of the matter is if they don't make it, if they're unsuccessful in this process, we are all going to lose. The world right now is depending on China to get this right. If China doesn't get this right, the 21st century is going to be a disaster for this planet. And I think they recognize that. Have they modified their ideologies? And, and does that mean that we have to modify ours as well so that you're not going to have this capitalism and communism sort of fighting each other and rather have something that's evolved between the two? I, you know, that's, that's hard. I don't know. That's a, that's a hard thing to say. I, I would say this. The people that I met, uh, that I was, uh, you know, uh, really honored to have met when I was in China, were genuine, friendly, and really, really do want to work together. I think that there are cultural differences and ingrained ideological differences that set up, that make it a little bit difficult sometimes with the communication and with the expectations. Okay? I think that the Chinese are sincere. But I, I, you know, I look at it, you have to look at it from their perspective. We complain about the Chinese, rightfully so, that, you know, they steal, they've stolen IP, that they've, you know, uh, gotten onto people's computers, that they've hacked systems and things like that. And on the other hand, the U.S. and American companies, to a certain extent, have been doing that for years. And what yep. we do is a little bit different. If we don't, if there's a strong company that has a product or a service, or a technology that's dominant, and a competing technology comes out by a development or technology group that competes with that, they'll use lawyers and laws and lobbyists to slow down the process, and in some cases stop the process of those technologies coming to market, which is really destructive from an evolutionary standpoint. It doesn't allow really innovative technologies that can solve a lot of our problems that relate to water and food management, waste and energy production from getting to the market because of the stakeholders that are making smart business decisions by either buying that technology and shelving it or using every effort that they can to stop it from getting, you know, getting to market. And I'm also just as sure that the U.S. does as much, you know, delving into Chinese computers as they do into ours. So, you know, you always get into this argument of if you look at everything from we're good and they're bad, then, you know, then everything they do that, that's questionable is terrible, and everything that we do that, that's questionable is okay. And, and I don't yeah, think you can look at it that way. No, yeah, I, I, I was thinking more, yeah, I was thinking, Bill, more that they, both sides are sort of moderating a bit with, for the common good. And it sounds to me like they are. You know, forget the, the politics side, but the reality yeah. of it is that they want to change, don't they? Because they've made huge strides in the last decade. I see, I see a much bigger commitment to change from the Chinese, frankly, than I do from, from the West. You know, and, and I just, I say that, I think that Germany and Sweden and, you know, uh, certain countries in Europe have been, you know, have been fantastic, particularly the Germans, in terms of their approach and how they're, they're, they're looking into what the 21st century is going to be like, and they're preparing for it in a very intelligent way. But I haven't seen that in the United States. 
And you would hope that the United States would take the lead, but our biggest weakness in society is the fact that we're individuals. And we tend to look at things from individual interests, whereas the Chinese tend to look, you know, they have the advantage of a, of a central government that once that central government basically has a concept of what it wants to do for societal change, the Chinese are, you know, full in step. And you would say, well, that's terrible, you know, but it's not. You know, at this time in history, that is a, a positive trait because they're able to mask or uh, create a critical mass of work and effort and focus in order to be able to deal with these incredibly large and transformative uh, solutions that are required in order to reverse our course of, you know, of climate change, of overuse of our resources, of, you know, losing our, you know, phosphorus. Now, understandably, China has much bigger issues at, in their home, you know, country than we do in the United States right now and in the West because they've, they've gone through this massive industrial growth in a very short period of time, and there has been a high price to pay for that. Understanding that, they are reacting to it with, I think, a determination and a focus that I don't see in the West. And we need to be helping them. We need to do everything we can because our fates lie with how successful or unsuccessful they're going to be in this effort. Hey, Bill, can I ask you a question? Talking about the great influx of immigrants that are coming and going to be populating these uprising cities, what is, and there, you say they're mostly coming from an agricultural uh, background. What's happening then agriculturally as these farmers are leaving their little farm? Uh, this is, you're pointing out a big issue. You know, there's two things happening here. First of all, you know, well, the families are still staying there, so the wives and the children are still working those farms. So I'm not sure if there is a, uh, you know, if there's a huge loss in productivity. However, the, you know, where you're seeing a lot of the growth in China, China has a central plains area that's probably comparable, not in size, but in terms of concept, to Kansas and Nebraska and the central part of the United States in terms of producing quite a bit of its, uh, of its agricultural wealth. And it's a very, I mean, this is a, a you know, historically an agricultural society. But mm-hmm. they go into the middle of these areas and they put up cities of literally 10 million people in the course of a decade that uses up all of that farmland. So they're taking a tremendous amount of their agricultural productivity offline, which, by the way, they're compensating at this point by leasing, you know, property in, in more than a dozen countries, both in Africa and Asia, where they're able to bring in supplemental crops. The issue with that is that eventually those countries, if climate keeps changing, if we, you know, if we're, uh, we're losing our bee population for pollination, uh, if we're running out of phosphorus so that fertilizer becomes more precious and then starts to disappear, uh, those countries are going to require those foods for themselves, and then you come into a conflict. So, you know, we can't keep going the way we're going. The other thing I'd say is this. China also uses, because of its tremendous requirement for food, and its tremendous agricultural base uses more more fertilizer and more uh, P205, which is a, a phosphorus blend uh, uh, for you know for their production than any other country on the planet. But they're also more inefficient in the way they apply it to their fields. They apply way too much, and then what happens is is the unintended consequences is that that runs off in you know with rainfall into their uh, waterways, creates algae blooms, chokes off their rivers. 
and eventually kills their waterways, which they're having a big issue with. And again, this is something, you know, along with air pollution and everything else that they're trying desperately to solve. And what's hard about it is, you know, these are solutions that are better so, solved before do, it gets to a catastrophic use, state. So right. do they use um, crop rotation rather than um, constantly doing what's happening here, where we put the same crop in the same field every year? I don't think they, you know, it's not that they're totally unsophisticated, because they're not. I mean, the Chinese are brilliant, and and a lot of what they do is we can learn from in the West. But in terms of their farming, you know, and, and at least from what I was able to see, and it's not a conclusive view of everywhere in the country, uh, the only issues I'm really aware of is their overuse of fertilizer. So, you know, China's a very vibrant, and a very wonderful growing atmosphere. I mean, they grow everything everywhere, and they make so they don't use a lot of pesticides. Oh, they use a lot of pesticides. They use a lot of fertilizer. They use too much of each. One of the big issues that they have right now in China is that I'm not sure the exact number. I think it's in the high teens, maybe 17 or 18 percent. But I'm I'm not exactly sure on that number, so don't quote me. Uh, of their of their land uh, has been you know polluted with heavy metals. So they're also looking at solutions to try to remove those metals from the soil to begin to make that soil more productive. But I think the big yeah, issue for China in the long run, as it is for the rest of the world, is managing their phosphor, use of phosphorus, and the recapturing of phosphorus. That's going to be critical to the survival of our large population if we're going to make it through the century. If we don't get that under control in the very near future, we're going to run out of phosphorus. So we're going to run out of phosphorus. We'll peak out on phosphorus shortly and we'll be in declining phosphorus reserves within the next 20 years and 40 years out from now. It's going to be a precious commodity, and you can't have you can't have crops that are dependent on fertilizer without phosphorus. And if phosphorus disappears, and you have to you have to recycle it at this point, there's no synthesized way to uh, make up for that loss. And but, I'm but trying, we use but I was way too to much phosphorus when we apply it. That's the problem. They only need a tiny amount. Isn't that right? Uh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, they're they're just overusing it. But they're not the only country to do that. So it's not like China no. is uh, you know, the lone culprit here. They have the same issues in India, in Indonesia, you know, in Africa. And what's needed is just better education and better crop management. And again, you know, that's not going to be a technological solution, but that's rather a matter of education and available education. That's what energize me that's one of the reasons yep. I went there. I'm trying to convince the the Chinese, uh, you know, government that the type of structural education system that we want to put in uh, would be what's needed in that country. What they're really interested in is teaching their leaders what to do, which is the great first step. But eventually, that has to disseminate down to the, you know, overall population, and that's the but, way they're going to. But be they're going to be great at that, aren't they? Because what you're telling us is that the population respects and listens to their leaders and doesn't argue with them. Uh, you know, it, that's if they do that. They, they, that's going to that's gonna be, we're still waiting to see whether or not the government is going to take that direction and that approach. And it's really my hope that they do not look at this just from the standpoint of acquiring technology from a, you know, from an economic development standpoint, which, you know, just like the United States and just like the rest of the world, that seems to be our Achilles heel, our, our inability yeah. to look at the big picture. Uh, you know, because we're we're looking so much at the finances, we're looking so much at the at the cash flow, 
We're looking so much at the possibility for, you know, economic expansion is critical and it's necessary and it has to be part of the solution. But it can't be the end goal. The end goal has to be economic development that supports the process of reestablishing a balance with our environment, a balance with our resource use, and a balance, you know, taking all of this carbon and all of these negative chemicals that we're putting into the environment out of the environment and either reutilizing them or at least getting them, getting it to a point where they're not flowing into our streams, getting into our soil, you know, and fouling our oceans and coastal waterways. Hey, Bill, we're going to go ahead and conclude this first session of our interview with you. We've we've reached that point where we're going to call it a close to this. This is Ann Miller and Chris Coop. Our guest is Bill Sosinski of Energime University talking to us about his most recent trip to China and all of that uh, exciting things that are happening there.